0: Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast with Dr. Amy Erickson, and our topic is Let's Not Screw It Up. I'm so glad that you came back for the rest of the conversation. You might notice as you're listening that my mic uh, gets a little weird in there, and what happened was a mic people died in the middle of our recording. So we have been able to save most of the content, and so hopefully the technicalities won't get in, in the way of that for you so enjoy the show if you like what you hear share it on all the different channels and if you need to learn more please reach out to us at geology.org have fun
1: so if you look back at this from a very modern lens with with that with that ancient foundation it's as if a libertarian <laughs> in their most idealistic and i wish by the way i wish i could be one because i'm an idealist no you don't no 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 i do Ugh. because because i'm because i I'm, I'm an idealist and then their world is wrecked and they go, oh man, we got to have regulations now. We got to have laws and we got to have things in place to keep society moving in a way that's actually going to function. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better than just allowing humans to do their thing, right? Now, my libertarian friends would argue with that. They would they would say that's a very shallow, naive, <laughs> even view of libertarianism. But, you know, to use that in general terms, right, is that kind of how this is? Because this is what they saw from the Babylonian exile from Assyrians and Babylonians and look at our people, the north and the south. It is decimated. The land is gone. The temple's gone. Our people are destroyed. You know, I mean, the things that they did to them, um, atrocious, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. maybe we should have some regulations and things in place. So that's is that, is that kind of how to use that analogy or that those metaphors of like in those political metaphors today, you know?
2: Yeah, well, I think they're always struggling with this because the kind of cool thing about Israel is it's this tiny little people group, eventually a tiny little nation in the midst of these two great empires. Yeah, they're
0: really small. They're I think really we forget
2: inconsequential that. politically. Yeah. 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 We forget that because they're the ones whose literature survived, which is totally ironic. But um, yeah, so I think that there is a lot of tension with empire in these texts. So Israel wants to be different from its oppressors. And so partly the laws and the limits are about trying to create an alternative community, you know, one that has different and and practices different values than empire. So you get the story, for example, of manna in the wilderness in uh, Exodus 16, I think. Oh, I hate it when I have to like say I didn't grow up with this this stuff. So we didn't read the Bible in the UCC church mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, but uh, anyway, you, you have this practice of manna. So God provides the people who have just been liberated from Egypt with this food that they can't hoard, and they can't store up and they can't take more than they need. Because it's a lesson in how not to be Egypt, which is the great mm. hoarding empire wow. of the world. So I think that what keeps coming out in Israel's law codes is this desire to do community differently, to take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger and to treat each other differently. So it's, it, it's aspirations are good. It doesn't always do it the way I would like them to do it. They fall short like all the time. Like all but, humans. Yes. Like all humans. They screw it up constantly. But.
1: So the Sabbath yeah. is not a law to be a law. The, the Sabbath has to do with the fact that in Egypt, you're a slave seven, 24 seven. Yeah. And yeah. no, actually you get it. You get a day of rest. Everybody. And, and, and the, the slaves,
2: the donkeys. Yeah.
1: Everybody. And the land gets. Yeah. So going back to the environment. I mean, how critical is that? Looking back, yeah, from exile,
2: yeah. You mean the practice of Sabbath or the practice of the, resting the, the land?
1: The, the, the Sabbath, not just for the human, but for for the land. The Sabbath rest for the land every yeah. seventh year.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I well, I'm not sure what it means. From exile, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Because I'm not sure. It's Where a to leading go with question, it. isn't it? No, it's a I meeting mean, question. I'm like, so you have because, an answer. I can because, tell <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, just because I'm thinking, like, the, the, since
1: the Earth had been, it had been subdued in a way that was, um, it was exploited, right? It was a, kind of like how it is today in the West, right? We, we look back now and say, we've, plastic, we've really, everywhere. We've really screwed up, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, if we could redo this, like, and we could reimagine this, let's yes. let the land rest. Let's, because if we do that, then maybe it would bring us. And ourselves and everything a little bit more health, right? We're not going to be slaves to work and work and work and more bricks and more buildings and all this. Like, we're going to enjoy ourselves. And we're going to we're going to realize that, like, we don't need all this stuff. We can share it. And we'll have enough on the seventh year. And the land will actually be able to, to be better for six more years if we let it rest for, you know. I mean, but all this is in retro, right? It's all in yeah no one's going to think of this stuff like, Hey, here's a great idea. Like you, you, we all, I mean, even as a parent, like I, Oh shit, I was a bad dad today. Well, maybe tomorrow I'll be, a, here's how I'm going to be, I'll be a better dad by not being the shitty dad I was yesterday you know? <laughs> until
2: six o'clock. <laughs> I mean, as a,
1: as a spouse, like, Oh, you get in a fight and you're like, Hmm, how could I do this differently? Like people who write books on marriage based on their marriages being poor, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, so, I sorry, I, you marriage book writers out
2: there. <laughs> <laughs> <Apologies>. <laughs> it's all marriage therapists. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's interesting that Israel thinks about the land as this incredible gift from God. So that's the other thing I think people get confused about with the land, is that they think that Israel has been like given the land no strings attached, they can do whatever they want with it because they are the chosen people. And that's not how it works at all. So Israel has to live according to Torah, has to live according to a completely different understanding of community. God's got all these crazy rules about how they can't worship other gods, which doesn't make any sense to them, it seems, because they're always wanting to worship other gods, you know, and this is a feminist position, obviously, to take that seriously and say there was something really compelling about those other religions. But nonetheless, um, the land belongs to God and God has given it as an inheritance to the people as long as they continue to be the people he's asking them to be. So, yeah, they screw it up. They lose it. They go into exile. And then Jeremiah, I think, prophesies that they're going to be in exile 70 years and then they'll be able to come back. So it's a seven plus, you know, out of zero rest for the land. But but it's almost like everybody needs a reset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The land, the people, God. God's like, oh, my God, please just leave these
0: <laughs> leave these people. So does the flood figure into this as a kind of forced rest for the land and for the people. I mean not, uh, it's
1: not rest. Yeah, how yeah. do how do yeah. you read that Noah story?
0: Because to me it it definitely, I mean this isn't this is kind of duh, but I mean it definitely has some like climate apocalypse yeah. stuff in there that that this is and every or many great religions have a flood story. So something happened. Yeah. Something that was universal, something that that really disrupted the way that the people interacted with the land. Yeah. Uh, so what do yeah. we do with that? What do we do with
2: that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, Genesis is sort of a crazy book. So God creates the world. It's all good. Jay says, almost right out of the gates, not so fast. Mm-hmm. And then by <laughs> chapter six, God is like, what have I done? These people are all awful. They're evil. I got to wipe them out and start all over again. I'll just save Noah. So there's this interesting sort of trial and error aspect to creation that's undergirding things. But there's also this idea that God starts working with. I mean, I love the idea that like God isn't omnipotent. Um in the Hebrew Bible isn't omniscient. This is just like, oh, how am I gonna do this? Yeah. Like, wow, I made this and oh, that's not that so didn't good. Yeah, do over. <laughs> you know? But um but God says the people are evil, they're immoral. I have to wipe them out. And after the flood, he's like, you know, I think I can't tie morality to survival because that's not going to work because humans are not ever going (laughs) to live up to the standards and we have to have a different approach here. And so that link between pureness, purity and morality that's made initially is broken apart after Noah. And there's a new covenant Okay. really kind of taking into account the reality of human weakness and human sin.
0: So are we condemned to destroy the world then now that we've been decoupled from it
2: no no so there's so so with noah so the interesting thing is that curse that is put upon adam and eve in genesis three is lifted with noah so once noah lands um you know wherever he landed mount ararat or wherever um noah's whole point uh, the, the, the point of the noah story is that the curse is gone now And the land will now be fertile and the people, (laughs) I know, nobody knows this. What? I actually, so, okay, truth be told, this didn't quite (laughs) occur to me until a couple of years ago when I started reading up on this stuff. Um, But yeah, so he plants a vineyard and he starts working with the arable soil again. And humans are then allowed to eat meat. So that's the other thing, of course, in Genesis one, that you, oh. people don't necessarily notice that is that originally humans are vegetarians, yeah. are given plants to eat, and then after Noah, they're allowed to eat animals with lots of conditions.
1: Well, he had a boat with a lot of animals, so yeah. he's probably hungry the whole time.
0: So, like this whole, <laughs> he got that they were forbidden, but they were for they weren't on the menu yet,
1: not on the boat, no. Nope. But you know, after <laughs> after forty days, yeah, your stomach's no plants. turning, You know, you you look at your own kids you say i'm hungry you know
2: (laughs) kale is not gonna cut it tonight (laughs) so
0: so all of these evangelicals that argue and point back to the curse which it's not really on them it's on the ground is that correct that's what i've read
2: um so women get cursed with painful childbirth the ground gets cursed and then the snake gets cursed yeah so
0: like that's all gone after noah yes (laughs) my old apologeticist is like
2: yes (laughs) now I need my bible in order to back this up it'll take me a little while to find it but yeah should I should I look for for it it, yeah okay this is a pause I believe you I have no question (laughs) you like it it's good
1: so were you told Janelle that you were cursed was this a thing that your denomination and your people specifically said to you
0: hmm I don't know if we did so much because we ordained women. Um,
2: What's your tradition, Janelle? I'm going to need a little Nazarene. Nazarene. Okay.
0: But I have a friend that um, on her day of baptism in a very conservative Lutheran denomination was told that no matter what you do, no matter what happens in your life, um, you can never um, preach and you can never participate in that. Wow. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's an it's it's an argument that's used a lot. But I mean, I mean, that's it's in the whole purity movement stuff. Like whether your church believes it, like it's all inherent in that that women are the problem and your bodies are the problem. Yeah. And yeah. Your bodies are responsible not only for your own behavior, but yeah. for the behavior of the men around you, and so that curse is your responsibility i'm not saying it's good theology i'm saying it's the theology that is pushed on so many people that's just like the the assumption like this is your fault this is your fault from the beginning yeah and this is the way it is and it's your responsibility
2: well it's interesting so i've been reading a lot about the environment obviously and the ties between women's bodies and the earth are really intense. So, so if you can justify, yep. um, you know,
0: separating uh, that.
2: Yeah. Well, so, but, but the destruction of the earth and the destruction of women destruction might be too strong a oh term, but God. the anxiety about fertility, the anxiety about something that, I think men have felt like they can't control um, both the fertility of the land and the fertility of women and dealing with that with like pesticides, with uh, abortion laws or condo- saying that women can't be leaders or can't be preachers, that that imposition of control yeah. um, is is. It's fascinating to me that it's both the earth and women's bodies. They tend to go together Mm -hmm. in these theologies. Yeah. Okay, so I've got my... Go Got for my it. uh passage I'm so sorry you here. okay so this is Noah in uh chapter 8 verse 20. He builds an altar to the Lord. this is after you know he finds dry land after the terrible 40 days and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood so that's what I was talking about decoupling morality and curse. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And then he sort of sets the seasons up. As long as the harvest endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then everybody gets blessed, be fruitful and increase your number and fill the earth. And so it's the restoration of uh, the end of Genesis 3. It's the redo. It's like the return from exile. Wow. So
0: but it doesn't specifically say that Eve is released.
2: It does not say
0: that Eve is released. You're right. They will thread
2: that needle. I really would have appreciated it if they had added that detail, because, yeah. That'd be awesome.
1: It might be in there when Noah got drunk, and then the story was lost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: (laughs) Nice. (laughs) People always leave that part out. I uh, can't. So I? many stories that are like their left hearts are, are evil. <laughs> 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 their hearts are evil.
2: That's right. Just how they are.
1: Okay. So practically speaking, how do people who have grown up in Christian homes, uh, specifically like more hyper evangelical homes, um, that deal with the end times, with uh, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, right? Yeah. In 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 the sense that this earth. Doesn't really it matters like I don't think a lot of people actually say it doesn't matter like they say oh it matters you, should, you know take good care of it but really ultimately it's about the next thing right so not even so much heaven but really about like um, and even N.T. Wright talks a lot about like he 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 would not agree with where I'm going with this mm-hmm. but he does talk about a new heaven new earth um, in the in the here and now right um, in a place that is tangible where you're breathing you got oxygen right you've got dirt you got plants you have dogs all those kinds of things uh, but it's better it's like uh you know i work out but now i can binge a hundred more pounds or i mean all those kinds, of people like i can't wait for my glorified body it's gonna be badass right, right and my dog is actually gonna obey me and not shit on the carpet uh, <laughs> my kids are gonna obey every word i say so you know all those things yeah and there's no weeds there's no more hailstorms, thank God, in Denver. Oh, my gosh. No more hail damage on our vehicles and our roofs. And But that's, but that's where people go. So they go there. They go, so this will be decimated. The new thing's going to be better. How do, you, how do you talk to people like that? And I, and I just, I, I don't think, I don't know if you even have an answer. I mean, maybe, Janelle, you can help out, too, because you're, you're from that background as well. It's not that these people I think that are, I don't think that are ill um, postured toward creation. I just think it's the hope is definitely not here.
2: Yeah, no. Well, so here's the great thing and the horrific thing about the Bible. It's such live literature. It's so open to interpretation. It's so ambiguous that people have done absolutely amazing things with it, and they have done horrible things with it. So the language of a new heaven and new earth, it's, it, it's just been abused, uh, similar to what we're talking about with Genesis 2 and 3. So if you want that to mean, that means I have no responsibility to take care of the earth because God has just come, come in and like reset it all, and, and it's going to be better, then you can find that. You know, I mean, as it's just again in the context of the Hebrew Bible, where I mean, this is an earthy text, this is a text where people are absolutely bound to the land, bound up with the land. There's not an idea of an afterlife. So, um, the now. it's it's now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you die and, um, you'll be really happy if your children collect your bones and put them in the family tomb and you're remembered as one of the great ancestors, but that's it. You're not going to heaven. There are no pearly gates. There are no banquet angels, nothing.
1: No reincarnation.
2: No, 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 none of that either. Mm -mm. So to get to the place where we might imagine that they would think that something like sort of afterlifey would happen with a new heaven and earth, I think is inconsistent with the text, but, but I hate to admit this, but there is the promise that things here's, here's the thing though. So Israel, again, as an oppressed community, as a, as a, as a tiny sort of powerless little community is saying, We don't have any control over anything. What are we going to do? Like we've got Babylon, we've got Assyria, we've got the Romans, you know, we've got all kinds of big, bad oppressors over us. We're utterly powerless. And the faith confession is... God is going to take care of it. God is going to come in and eventually he's going to, you know, like judge these bad guys and we're going to be lifted up and we're going to be able to survive. So it's more of a, um, a hope that God will care for the powerless, you know? And so when powerful people get their hands on these texts and use it to do what they want, it's really quite dangerous, um to like abdicate their responsibilities and to justify um exploiting the earth and terrorizing women and the like so so in the hands of a community that doesn't have any power this is all great stuff because they're imagining that god is going to is, yeah. is going to provide for them and save them and expressing that in a faithful way and then you say oh well that actually means that uh, you know we don't have to worry about the environment it's crazy
0: and you keep referencing that Hebrew, the language is earthy, yeah, like how how is that um tied into their understanding of the world and the way that it works and and their connection to it? yeah, so
2: i I, I work on this a lot, actually. I teach a class called um, the body and sexuality in the Hebrew Bible, because, you know, apparently you put sex in the course title and students want to take the <laughs> class. So isn't that convenient? But but really, I'm very interested in the question because Christianity in particular, um, in the last few hundred years has been incredibly dualistic. So thinking about, you know, spirit versus matter and um, kind of demonizing everything having to do with body and earth and elevating everything that has to do with mind and spirit and reason. And the Hebrew Bible doesn't know any distinctions here. So I say it's earthy because everything is embodied So there, as I said, there isn't this afterlife, there isn't this idea that there's like a spirit that's going to, you know, flee your body and then have a better life somewhere else. It's all in the here and now. So, and even language, I'm sure you know the language of Ruach, which is the sort of quintessential example of this. It means spirit, not in the sense of like spirit as opposed to body, but that kind of animating life force within people, God's spirit. It means breath. The nasty stuff that comes out of your mouth in the morning. It means wind. So it's this term that kind of defies our desire to separate the spiritual and the material.
0: So, by its very nature, it's present. And and we're connected to this because we live.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the ruach that hovers over the tohu vavohu in Genesis 1 is, is coming from God, but it's also in us. So the ruach gets breathed into the Adam and, you know, the ruach is what gives us life. So it's all it's all of a piece.
1: Yeah, and this always goes back to what Rabbi Stephen Boothnadav had said when he was here months ago and yeah. talking about um, the breath of, of God, God's name. I mean, which, you know, we we say Yahweh in English, but it is a breath. And it was his mentor, I think, that had said, Yahweh, you know. Mm, he. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice. Like, okay, the breath of God is the name of God. And it's, it's an embodied name because like you were saying, the Hebrew language is, it's very earthy and tangible. So that's a beautiful thing. That's a good reminder. Because dualism is so, it's so dangerous. It's trapped us so badly in the Western world. We can thank, what's his face? Alexander the Great. That's who we can thank. <laughs> but you know, I also got to thank him because there's a lot of things I like about the Western world. I'm not going to lie.
2: Yeah, yeah. But thanks, well, Greeks we used and to Romans. Well, joke in seminary about enlightenment bashing, you know, so we'd be like, oh, it's all about the enlightenment. Descartes he ruined everything, you know, all about the mind. I think, therefore I am. And, you know, the enlightenment has brought us some good things, I suppose. But, you know, we're living with the legacy of, of the things that we don't like, I suppose. And that's, that's, that's liberating because then we can say, here's what we want to take from the enlightenment and here's what we want to leave behind.
0: Right.
1: Do you have any other final questions? I've got a few just ending questions, but Go just, just, just to end it, if you, if you want anything else, any other textual stuff. All right. So to end the night, if you could give us your top three, it could be two or four. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make you say three. Okay. Theologians that have impacted you throughout your career. Who would they be, and why should people read them and study them?
2: Oh, you're asking a biblical scholar about theologians. That seems totally <laughs> unfair. I'm like opposed to theology. <laughs> That's not true. That's not entirely biblical true. theologians. I will. Say, okay. All right. I'll do biblical theologians. So, um, I was. I was teaching, I think I didn't say this at the pub. I think I said this when I was teaching at Columbia Seminary, which is where I went to school, but um, I was taking systematic theology with George Straup at the same time that I was taking Old Testament theology with Walter Brueggemann. And I go into systematic theology. It's kind of like Greek for me. I'm like, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> like the doctrine of God, like what the hell? This makes no sense to me. And then I would bring that to Walter Brueggemann and I would say, well, what is this about God? Like omnipotent, omniscient. And he's like, well, see, systematic theology is all just bullshit. You know, (laughs) the Bible is where it gets interesting. So, um, yeah. So I guess I have to name Walter Brueggemann as one of my favorite (laughs) biblical theologians. He's uh, kind of a cranky old Yahweh type. Um, and uh, I love Heschel. Um, you know, I'm kind of a wannabe Jew myself. So, f- before Heschel.
1: And Heschel warms my heart.
2: <laughs> I know. Such good stuff. He did such good work on the prophets. Athos of God, his interpretation of Jeremiah's, like, just brings me to tears pretty much every time.
1: And... It could be two. It doesn't, it doesn't go, need to be three. I'm going
2: I'm to leave it with those two because, you know, I think they deserve to be up at the top above everybody else. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should put Von Rod in there too. Did you ever read Gerhard Von Rod? No. So again, my teacher was Walter Brueggemann and he used to like bow down every time he said Von Rod because he was his teacher. So, um, yeah. So I guess suppose if I want to honor my legacy there, he did a lot of pretty amazing work. So.
1: That's cool. So, uh, most pressing need outside of this topic, what is that? And what is theology doing about it today? Most pressing outside need. of the environment and climate change.
2: Oh, I don't get to name that one. There no, isn't another one.
1: I don't think she gets to name it because it's, it's like implied <laughs> in the actual conversation. But well,
0: without it, we all die.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But so name the name. name, Okay. Name number two. How about that for Janelle? Because she likes to have order. What is number two? And what's theology doing about it?
2: You didn't give me these hard questions in advance. I feel you should have. All right. So let's see. Um, Oh, boy. How about how about violence? How about war? And what is theology doing about it? unfortunately not much um but what could theology okay so here I'll okay I, I don't know if this is a good answer to the question but this is what's coming to mind especially since we both seem to be wannabe Jews Ryan one of the things that i think is problematic with christian interpretation of the bible and this is historically is that people read the bible trying to get doctrine out of it trying to get a principle one thing that everybody can agree on and then you have to declare some people you know heretics and other people Orthodox, and they're constantly fighting over who's in and who's out because of what they think the Bible sets, the one thing that you know everybody has to agree on. And when um, Jewish interpreters get together, the goal is to have dialogue. The goal is to disagree. And I think that the text models that for us. you know there is nothing on which the text agrees. If you look throughout the Canon, they're always, revising what they thought before arguing with each other saying, Hey, you know, actually we think that your, uh, ideas about women are completely outdated and stupid. We're going to update those. Um, they don't actually do that, but I wish they we would wish, uh, certainly they wish. work in that spirit. We, so we uh. should be able to do it because they have done it. So to be able to appreciate that, um, we don't need to agree in order not to kill each other. And that is modeled in the canon itself this like intense lack of agreement and yet they're all in the same family Mm -hmm. i feel like that was a terrible answer to the question but wow
0: that's a hard one i think it's really poignant right now actually we have to learn to get along even when we disagree
2: Respectfully Respectfully. disagree. Yeah. And that's totally what we're not doing right now in our Mm -hmm. political system. And it is absolutely disturbing. Did you hear about the democracy project where these scholars from, I think, Yale brought all of these like 500 or something people of different viewpoints into a room and just had them discuss people being in the same room together discussing with the idea that they ought to be respectful means that they don't think that the other side has an evil point of view, but just has a different, different. point of view. So yeah. yeah. So that I think is what's
1: modeled in the text. Yeah. That was actually part of our our last topic we tackled for two weeks was ditching the internet diatribe and learning to be with each other in difference, which mm-hmm. is really what Brutheology is about. Um, even if what you think somebody has to say is not only idiotic, but even toxic, like you still got to be in the same room with them because that's the world yeah. that we live in. Yeah. Which actually reminds me of, I mean, I'm sure y'all saw it's all over social media, but George W and Ellen at the booth at the Dallas Cowboys game. God's team, by the way. Did y'all <laughs> see this? So, yeah, the Cowboys game. Unfortunately, we lost. By the time you're listening to this, we will be on our way to the Super Bowl. But we did lose last weekend, and George W was up there with Ellen DeGeneres, and they're laughing. And of course, you know, cameras were on him and this is fantastic stuff. And, you know, they were asking her, why would you be with a man that you adamantly are uh, in disagreement with according, not only just to I mean your lifestyle, but like all of his politics and who he was as president. And, you know, she, I don't know what her words were specifically. You can look it up, but and she was basically saying that we need to be with each other and our differences and you can still respect somebody without respecting their views. And like, and I, I feel like that she is embodying, pretty much what jewish theologians or not theologians but the rabbis what they did back in the day yeah they probably like wanted to throw down and punch each other in the face but at the end of the day like they're like oh let's go to synagogue together let's go let's go break bread together yeah. right yeah yeah and that's what you see ellen and w do which the two most opposing people. Can you imagine? I mean, Ellen and W. Together. I got to see this. I got to see yeah, it. It's all, Yeah, And of course, you know, the hyper left got all like, oh, well, you know, this is and they had their complaints about it. And I was like, come on, guys. Like, this is a good example. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah sure. I disagree with W. I mean, but like she's doing something that I think we should all do. Sit, sit with somebody and laugh with them, even if you think that and he had talked not just his politics, like he was actually. <laughs> His politics affected lots, I mean, millions of of people across the world. So, and she did it, you know?
2: That's pretty awesome. Well, and there are toxic texts, like supremely toxic texts. And I get students who are like, I just, I just can't read this. I can't deal with this. And my thing is like, well, you have to, if you, if you take it seriously, that, that this is scripture, many of them don't, um, you at least owe it to the text to try to understand it. And often when you try to understand it, you realize it might still be toxic, but not in the way you think. And that might, I mean, I think it just broadens your mind. I hate sitting around thinking I'm right. How boring is that? So encounter things, I like to anyway, encounter things that a lot of people call toxic because there's something underneath there that deserves understanding. I don't know. I'm kind of, you know weirdly optimistic though.
1: No, I, I, I like that. I mean, I, to even reiterate what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like, I mean, there's, there's a fear within a lot of people's uh, politics and the theology that if you just sit down long enough with them, like it's not so much about what they've said that you disagree with. It's like, there's something underneath that. Like, what is the context of those views like and it's a lot, of, a lot of it's based out of fear you know and if you just sit down with somebody that'll that'll come out and then you have a little bit more grace and maybe a bit more mercy but uh so what are you working on right now and where can people find you i tried to find you on facebook to stalk you but i couldn't find you as creepy as that sounds you weren't <laughs> on facebook <laughs> i don't do social media there you go that's why we couldn't find her
2: uh-huh, that's very intentional. It's not good for me. <laughs> um what am I working on like scholarship wise yeah, oh God, well, um, I've been working on a commentary on the Book of Jonah that, that you know it's it's two pages in the Hebrew Bible. You don't even have to turn the page to read the book um and I'm working not only on the Hebrew text but also on the history of its interpretation and uh boy, people love Jonah. So popular interpretations, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, 2,000 years worth of um, uh, art, music. Yeah, so I'm finishing that up right now. Hopefully it'll be in print, something I can hold within the next year.
0: Is there anything in that story that uh, is relevant to the climate disaster and the movement of calling out what's going on in our world right now.
2: That is such a good question. And, you know, I started this thing, this book like years ago before I was really, and I was actually trying to do a Jewish reading. Which sounds a little weird, but um, I love the way Jewish interpreters are working with the Book of Jonah, and especially as opposed to the way Christian interpreters were working with it. so um, so I wasn't asking those ecological questions. So you get a lot of beasties in Jonah, you've got land and all kinds of interesting things to attend to there. But I'm sad to say that i didn't
1: I didn't do it, so.
0: Maybe it'll make a a good journal article at least. There
2: you go. Exactly.
1: (laughs) P.S. Yom Kippur, if we have five minutes, anything on that? Because tonight is, you know, the sun went down and the day is over. Anything you want to add to the Day of Atonement?
2: Well, so I, I told you I was working on the book of Jonah and that Jonah is one of the readings for Yom Kippur. And one of the questions is why? So the Ninevites, the sort of Gentiles in the text, perform this model repentance. And um, that's sort of fraught for me because that feels like a sort of Christian Mm supersessionist kind of move or it is a move that Christians have made Mm -hmm. um, to kind of put down Jews. But the fact that Jewish readers can still – Encounter the Ninevites as model repenters to me is like an incredible act of generosity and grace, and like you know, a a, a position that I can't imagine many would be able to hold. So that's those are my thoughts. Repentance yeah,
0: is complicated. Now. It used to be really easy.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think that Jonah is actually making fun of the Ninevites Mm -hmm. for their like, you know, over the top sort of ludicrously simple repentance. Um, Yeah. So I don't know if it was as simple for them as they're going to make out in that story. but.
1: And that's what this season is really all about is is, uh, righting your wrongs. And of course, it takes longer than 10 days for most people to do that. But it's a nice reminder every year. Leading up to that day of uh, of atonement. So uh, I love you. I love the Jewish holidays. Yeah. And Sukkot's coming up next, by the way. Yeah. Which is a great one. Getting down with the booths. The in-gathering of all nations. Talk about universal. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Amy. This was great. So uh, if you want to ever go to Iliff School of Theology, make sure you take classes with Dr. Amy Erickson. Oh, they'll be
2: happy that you gave Iliff the plug. My employers, that is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So cheers. And if you like what you heard, share it on the line. Even if you're not on social media, do this. You can actually still share stuff on social media. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. For free. (laughs) Yeah. Wait. You can share things on social media. Well, you can't, share, sorry, you can't
1: share. Sorry, you can't share. You can. You can. So this two weeks ago, we had you on Facebook Live. People can actually view that even if they don't have a Facebook account. So I think I was confusing that. But you can. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you just get the link and you you share it with. However you want to share it, even if you're not. I, I can email one, it to my mom. There are ways to do this. Yes. Yes. LinkedIn. That, is that that that's not social media? You can do it on LinkedIn. You can do it on Tumblr, social media. I'm trying to think of things outside of the big three, but yeah, you can, you can copy the, copy the link on Podbean and yeah, send it to your mom. How about that? All right, listeners. Thank you so much. And cheers again.